Hello, and welcome to the Signature Leadership Series podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders from around the world. I'm your host, Jennifer Adams. I'm a former superintendent of a large, highly diverse, publicly funded school district in Ottawa, Canada. I was really fortunate throughout my career to have many great opportunities for professional learning, and I'd like to extend that opportunity to you. Working together with Knowledge Hook, a Canadian digital math company, we are continuing to support thought leadership in education. Today's show is an exploration of education and democracy, of educational change and social movements. While these topics may appear to be at the macro level, we'll dive right into the micro level, focusing on how educators at every level in education systems can make it happen in classrooms, schools, and districts. Our guest today is just the person to talk to us about these concepts because he has lived experience in both worlds, in the Global North and the Global South. Santiago Rincón Gallardo is from Mexico City, attended graduate school in Harvard, and for the past 10 years has lived in Toronto, Canada, working with Michael Fullen as his chief research officer. Today we'll explore the thinking behind Santiago's recent book, Liberating Learning, Educational Change as Social Movement. Hi, Santiago. We are thrilled to have you here with us today. Hi, Jennifer. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Santiago, one of the things on our series is we get lots of feedback coming back and saying we want to learn more about what things should be looking like in our education system. So it's a great honor to be able to take a look at the book that you wrote, uh, Liberating Learning, Educational Change as Social Movement. What inspired you to write that book, Santiago? Well, if I had to say it briefly, learning to learn by myself, developing the confidence and the joy of learning is one of the most important gifts that I've received from life. One of the most amazing things that has happened to me. The funny thing is that this is something I learned outside of school, not in school. I used to be a very good student, actually the best student in my cohort. Uh, you know, the best grades every year, all the way from elementary school to high school. I had the best grades. I represented my school in academic competitions. Sometimes I won. I got, you know, a certificate every month saying that I was, I, I had obtained the best grades in my group. And I did that for my whole trajectory in school. Yet I graduated from high school and not knowing how to learn my own not knowing how to read and write, how to put my ideas in writing, not even knowing what my ideas were. So I think about that experience. I, I just realized that what I learned in school was to be taught. I learned to be taught. I learned to understand what teachers needed from me and to do it, how to find the ways to get the best possible grade with the least possible effort and do it. And I got very masterful at that game of, understanding what I needed to do to get the best grade and to get it. But for me, it was a big shock when I realized that with all these great grades and, and my certification, you know, my diplomas and all those kind of things, I was disabled to learn my own. I happened to develop the ability to learn my own and, and to regain the, the confidence in my own capacity to learn from other experiences. And we can talk about those later. But part of the drive behind this book is to try to point out 
that one of the best things we can do with and for our kids is to ignite their passion for learning, to develop their capacity to learn, and to nurture their confidence in their capacity to learn whatever they set themselves to learn. And at the same time, to point out that school is usually not very good at that. It actually gets in the way in many ways. So the book is an attempt to summarize what I've learned over the past 20 or so years of work in the education sector to try to offer a vision for what learning might look like if we liberate it and uh, how we can get to do that, uh, in not only in classrooms, but in entire schools, in entire educational systems across thousands of schools. Santiago, you had me hooked right at the introduction. And it's not very often, I mean, I always obviously take the time to read introductions, but it's not very often where I read the introduction and I think, I have to read this book. And there was a couple of things that jumped out at me, Santiago. The first one is that you have very different lived experiences than many academic researchers in the world. You grew up in Mexico City. You grew up in one education system, and yeah. yet you have lived and worked in Toronto, Canada, which obviously has a very different education system and culture, etc. So you have a, f- a foot in both worlds, and I think that that is really helpful in setting the tone for the book because you have observations that you can make because you've lived in both those worlds. Tell me about that. Yeah, I have I have been very lucky, I will say, to live, as you're saying, in pairs of worlds that are usually very separate from each other, that don't usually speak to each other or get to know each other. One of them is I grew up and, and I and I was raised and went to school and university in Mexico, in Mexico City. I still consider that my homeland. That's where most of my well, all my childhood and my youth kind of developed. Uh, I've been in Toronto only for about 10 years, and I've been working with Michael Fulland since um, 2013 or so. The pairs of worlds that I've been able to navigate and to live in and to know are things like the global south, Mexico, and uh, the global north, uh, North America, Canada in particular. I've also worked for many years in Mexico at the grassroots level, just uh, developing work with teachers in very remote communities around Mexico. And uh, and when I started working with Michael, I started to gain more exposure to systems thinking, to how to lead entire systems, an entire province, an entire district to produce change. I've been involved in a lot of work around social justice and also school improvement. So these pairs of worlds and also the practice and uh, academia. You know, I, I went to Harvard, I did my PhD there, but uh, most of my core ideas and and, uh, and beliefs were developed in practice, mostly with teachers in rural Mexico. So what I've found first is that, as I was saying, these pairs of worlds, global south and global north, uh, grassroots and top-down change, academia and practice don't usually talk to each other. And uh, there's so much that we can learn each world can learn from the other. And I actually think that when those kind of sets of ideas come together, that's when the magic happens. I'm trying to express that in the book. Um, I see it as, as, um, as a combination 
of these pairs of worlds, what the South can learn from the North, what the North can learn from the South, what academia can learn from practice, what practice can learn from academia, what the kind of community organizing uh, and grassroots work can learn for systems work and vice versa. I think that's part of the strength of the book, Santiago, is that because you are from the global South, you've taken a different perspective than what we typically hear in educational reform. And there's a piece at the beginning that you describe that talks about the educational change field versus the social movement field. And the reader, as I was, when you're going through that, it became very, very familiar. I mean, you talked about the educational change world and you talked about their focus on instructional improvement and teaching profession and student achievement and policy implementation and organizational leadership, whole system change. And I felt like I was looking at my leadership career in the rearview mirror because absolutely that was my focus. And that was my focus partly because I was brought up and living in an education system in Canada. Global North. That's what we talked about. And as I looked at the juxtaposition with that, with the social movement, of course, in the last 10 years in Canada, we've done a better job of talking more about social movement and equity and the need for everyone to have a voice. You bring a really interesting perspective because you're from the Global South. You still consider that your homeland you're living in the global north, and you're able to talk about those two things at the same time. It's a real strength of the book. Thank you. One thing that I uh, was very impressed when I came to Ontario, to Toronto, was the educational system in the province at the time. Right now, it's in trouble. <laughs> but uh, before, all the, the reform that took place between 2003 and 2018 or so, around 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 15 years of continuous reform is one of the best things I've seen in my life. I mean, it, it was it was solid, it was powerful. I had an opportunity to visit many schools across Ontario, especially around Toronto, and um, found many schools where I said, I would love to send my kids here. And uh, there are not many schools where I go and, and I have that reaction. And I came to learn through Michael and many colleagues at the Ontario Ministry of Education how fabulous the work that was going on at the province was. At the same time, I think that um, Ontario, again, as amazing an example, as as it said for the world, in terms of what a world-class education can look like, in many ways, it is a very good example of the old paradigm. And the old paradigm is schooling. And uh, and it's organized around certain technical terms and, uh, and ways of thinking. That, again, you can have a system that's working very well under the current paradigm, but that may still be falling short on what now we need for our children, for our kids, etc. So that's the first thing. I'm a big fan of Ontario and what, what the province accomplished in 15 conti- years of continuous reform. And at the same time, I think what I'm trying to bring to the conversation from what I learned in the Global South, in Mexico, and many other examples that I came to learn about later, is that uh, we could combine what we know about grassroots pedagogical innovation in the global south with what systems like Ontario have managed to do, have very robust public education systems to build the education we need for the future. Uh, let me just put it this way, just very briefly. As I said at the beginning of this conversation, what I learned in school was to be taught. And I think that's a good synthesis of what most of our kids learn when they go to school. They learn to be taught. 
And uh, what does that mean? That means learning to understand what the teacher in the room expects from you and do it. It's about putting the responsibility, placing the responsibility on determining what is good, what is good, what is um, true, what is beautiful outside of yourself, in your teacher, in your principal, in your minister of education, in your premier, whatever. But it, it's about placing the responsibility outside instead of owning the responsibility to decide by yourself, given your values, your knowledge, your wisdom, what is true, what is good, what is beautiful. And that's when I find a big clash between what schools are best at cultivating and what learning is. Because learning to be taught and learning to learn, those are very different things. Again, learning to learn requires you to own the responsibility to determine by yourself what is right and what isn't, what is good, what isn't, what is beautiful and what is not. And I don't think schools so far have been very good at cultivating this. Sometimes it may be kind of a a secondary result of a magnificent teacher that you happen to have access to. But as a whole system, schooling has not been designed to, to encourage these kind of skills that require independence, autonomy, freedom, etc. So I think that's where kind of the new paradigm comes into play. We need to start thinking about schools, classrooms, educational systems, where learning is at the center of what we're doing. Our kids learning to learn on their own, not being taught. Those are two very different things. And doing that does require pretty massive cultural change. We need to change in very fundamental ways what we believe about teaching and learning, how we practice teaching and learning, and school leadership and system leadership, etc. And the main point I want to make in the book is, if this is what we want to do, if we want to liberate learning, to ensure that learning comes to life and is vibrant in our classrooms, in our schools, in our school systems, we do need to change the culture of schooling in very dramatic ways, very deeply and very broadly. And um, throughout history, the most powerful vehicles for cultural renewal have been social movements. That's the mechanism that humanity has crafted and found and identified as a vehicle to change culture quickly and broadly. So what I'm trying to bring here is the notion that, or in the book, is the notion that we need to ignite something similar to a social movement in our educational systems to change in fundamental ways what I would call the game of schooling for a new game, which is the game of learning. That's a different game, but a very exciting one. It is exciting, Santiago. And and I think you do a good job. You talk about kind of macro level concepts, which some of them are relatively, I'm going to say, new to the Global North conversation. And then you get into, you dive right into very clear examples and clear examples of what teachers can be doing, what principals can be doing, et cetera. And it makes it much more, I think it gives us examples of how this can be attained, how we can each have a role. So let's swing up to those higher levels because some of those concepts, again, I found them fascinating. And I think it's relatively new to the discourse here in the in the global north. So one of the things that you talk about is learning is a practice of freedom. And maybe that's my privileged position from, you know, growing up in a country like Canada that has a, a strong publicly funded education system. I didn't really think a lot about learning as freedom. I, I took that for granted. And I think that concept is an interesting one. Tell me a little bit what you're thinking about with that. 
Yeah, the, well, the first thing is, if any of us thinks about things that we've learned to do very well, the things that we know how to do very well, be it cooking or playing an instrument or singing or making friends or telling jokes or dancing or, you know, riding a bike, playing a sport, and we think about how we learned them, I think we'll get a feeling, a warm feeling in our heart. It's just very sweet memories. The things we know how to learn well and, and thinking about how we learn them brings very warm feelings to our hearts. And I think they do because they bring a sense of experiencing freedom, experiencing the comfort to go at something you really want to get good at with the confidence that you can make any mistakes you need to make and that that's okay, that that's part of it, that you're not going to be judged for it that you are determined to learn it and that you decide how much time you're going to put into it. You decide that you're going to learn that thing. You can decide who you're going to be learning with, for how long you're going to be involved in this kind of learning. Those are conditions of freedom. Those are fundamentally conditions of freedom. Now, the funny thing is that usually when I ask people to find something they learn how to do very well, to think how they learned it, most of them will agree on certain basic conditions that were in place for them to learn something, to, to learn well, you know? It, it had to be something that they were interested in. They had to practice over and over again. They had to have access to feedback. They had to have exposure to the expert practices of someone who knew how to do that thing very well. You know, if you wanted to learn how to cook, you having exposure to a good cook is a good thing. If you want to learn how to dance, having exposure to a good dancer is a good thing. So, you know, uh, interest, exposure, practice, feedback, reflection. You have to reflect on what's working, what isn't. Collaboration. Almost everybody in many of the sessions that I used to lead when we could still meet in person with large groups of people, most of people would raise their hand whenever I asked for each of these conditions and said, was this present in your experience? When I ask, did you learn it in a classroom? Almost nobody raised their hands. Almost hmm. nobody. Hmm. Again, so the thing is, on the one hand, we have what we know and we believe about powerful learning. We all can access that knowledge because we all have experiences of learning something very well. And again, we will remember that with warm feelings, with joy. It will bring us joy. Right. On the other hand, is, is what we are doing in schools. Those are very different things. What we believe and know about powerful learning and what we do in schools are two very different things. Most of us have memories from school that have to do with the friendships we develop, with the connections we develop, we forged with caring adults, with some role model that we found, those kind of things. Not often with what happened in the classrooms. I'm wondering what comes first. Is it educational change and then social movement? Or is it social movement and then educational change? Is it context-driven? That's a, that's a very good point. So let me break it down in two pieces. First, Global South and the well-established systems and where they're heading and, and then the, the, what, what's happened in the Global South in some of the examples that I've been able to learn about and, and study and in many cases be involved in. What you have in good, strong educational systems is a culture of system learning that's, and that's a culture of collaboration that's working very well, you know, or that was working very well. You would see leaders as learners and you will see when things are working well, an infrastructure that can be put in the service of 
decent teaching, of good teaching, good teaching practice, right? That allows you also for more sustainability. And that should not be taken for granted because that's one of the weak spots of the movements of pedagogical renovation I've seen in the global south. The problem is that when you have a very well-established institution, it's very hard to turn it around. Very hard. You have very well-ingrained mechanisms and norms and procedures that can be very helpful up to a point. But then the very things that got you to your success can get in the way. And that's a key limitation. That's one of the key limitations. Radical innovation, radical reinvention of schools and education systems is harder in well-established systems. So that's one thing. Now, I will, I will say in systems like Ontario, I think what Ontario was is a good example of a, of a marriage between top-down change and bottom-up change. And I think that's at the core of what we have to do. If you're leading a large, well-established system, part of your work is to amplify the grassroots work and the innovation. If you're working on the grassroots, then part of your work is to engage with the upper levels to start shaping you know, the institution where education system resides. In the global south, on the other hand, you have very weak institutions and uh, very broad margins that are very distant from the center. And that creates the conditions for more radical and quick innovation. In the Learning Community Project or Tutorial Networks, which is the educational innovation that I was involved in when I was in Mexico, and that ended up spreading to over 9,000 schools over the whole country, we started the work in the most remote communities in Mexico, communities with less than 500 people living in them that were so small that they couldn't have one teacher per grade. So they, all they had was multi-grade schools. It was one teacher serving several groups, two teachers serving, serving the whole school. So those are the margins. And we have a lot of that in the global south. Multi-grade schools, small communities scattered around. There are lots of them. And there's a very weak presence of the central office in those schools. So that gives you more room for innovation, just to depart radically from what schooling is, not only out of a creative impulse, out of necessity. What happens in the margins of societies is that conventional solutions, schooling being one of them, are very expensive, they're very ineffective. And at the same time, there's very large unmet demand. So in those conditions, innovation is a need. It's really like necessity is the mother of invention. You cannot pretend to have one teacher for each grade in a classroom when you only have one or two teachers. So you need to do things fundamentally differently if you want to provide a service and do something that's relevant for the kids. So schooling is problematic anywhere. But in the margins of society, the problems of schooling become hit you on the face more quickly. What I liked, Santiago, about your example from Mexico, you painted the context very clearly. Rural, remote, have to do something completely different. What I thought was interesting was two things. First of all, that you were able to find a solution. What would learning, what would teaching and learning look like in those rural communities? Secondly, that you were actually able to scale it across many communities. And the third, and maybe the piece that I thought was the most important, was the fact that the Ministry of Education in Mexico, the National Ministry, was willing to bring that into the folds and to be able to ask the question, what have we learned from that experience? 
And are we able to have that influence what we're doing across our education system, not just to simply be supporting those 9,000 schools, but to actually learn from how they're doing things and see if some of those adaptations could be taking place in our schools across the country? Yeah, so what happened, I mean, the model is very simple. And this this is a, a pedagogy that uh, I was able to uh, participate in developing with my mentor, Gabriel Camara, and uh, with a team that was housed for some time in uh, the National Council for the Promotion of Education, CONAFE, for its uh, initials in Spanish, Consejo Nacional de Fomento Educativo. And the model was very simple. It was the idea, we came up to that model through constant experimentation and testing ideas and then refining our training system, all those kind of things. So uh, keeping an, an open-ended model so that we could test some ideas, see what was happening in classrooms, check what we needed to change in our strategy to refine it over time. The model at the end of the day is very simple. The idea is a tutor shows up in a play in a, in a learning space with a catalog of topics that the tutor themselves know very well because they have learning their own network of tutors. And students are able to choose from those that collection, from that catalog, what is it that they would like to explore. So each student works individually or in small groups in their own learning project based on choice, on what they chose. It's a limited choice, but it's choice. They, they can choose from what the tutor has to offer. And they're expected to demonstrate publicly what they're learning and how they're learning. They do it in writing, they're doing public demonstrating public presentations. And uh, it's probably the most important step. They, they also, once they demonstrate mastery of what they've learned, they're expected to become tutors to other kids who may want to learn this this thing that they know how to, to do well. So the kids are learning at the same time content. They're learning skills to learn independently, but they're also learning the pedagogy. And over time, what you do is to create kind of a collective, collective fund of knowledge where anybody can access to the knowledge of someone else through a tutorial relationship where one is a tutor, someone who masters the topic, the other is the apprentice. And it doesn't matter who is the adult and who's the kid. If it's a child who masters a geometry problem very well, they can very well tutor an adult, you know, a teacher who's visiting the school or a new teacher that's coming into the school, all those kind of things. And that's what happens throughout the day. You have the kids very engaged in their own projects, supporting others, uh, demonstrating publicly what they're learning, how they're learning, and doing very well. You see kids that literally awaken to themselves in incredibly powerful ways. Kids who were known to be very submissive and quiet and, and shy, now just shining with their eyes just full of light because of the confidence they've gained in their capacity to learn, their eagerness to learn and to continue learning over time and to support others learning anyways. The thing is, this initial model that we developed in CONAFE, then we decided to take it to some public schools, still in in remote communities, in a very small scale. And what we did was to immerse ourselves into the schools, to spend time with the the teachers in the afternoons to train them, but also in 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 the day we would spend the mornings with them, working with them to try to bring these ideas to life in their real context. And what happened relatively quickly was that teachers were seeing such a fundamental, profound change in their kids that they started to spread the word, to call other colleagues and say, come see what we're doing here. There's something important here. See what my kids are being able to do. They started to spread the word and and, uh, that ignited a grassroots spread of the practice to a few dozen schools and then to about a hundred. 
Now, as this grassroots expansion was happening, one of the members of our team, Dalila Lopez, she was invited by the Minister of Education to lead the Department of Innovation, the ministry, at the national level. And uh, what she did, I think, was very smart. She started to bring in people from the team that had been working with teachers with a lot of expertise in, in turning around schools into very vibrant learning communities to her team. So she started to create so to speak, a bastion within the monster, right? Within the Ministry of Education to start bringing in good ideas to further support the spread of the initiative. So as you were saying, the practice through these national initiatives spread to over 9,000 schools around the country. And uh, the results were outstanding. After only three years of operation of this kind of large-scale effort, the kids in the most remote schools, the most remote middle schools in the country, public middle schools in Mexico serving the most marginalized communities, started to outperform their peers in conventional public middle schools at the national level. In the case of mathematics, their um, achievement was similar to the achievement of kids in elite schools, in private schools, which are in Mexico just for the elite of the elite, 8% of the kids who have families who can afford to pay for the education of their kids. So we had the kids in the most remote communities performing at a similar level to kids in private schools. That's equity, in my view. Now, as I was saying, so it doesn't matter whether you're leading change from the top or from the bottom, but you need to engage with the other side and engage not only in terms of programmatic supports or just pre-planned activities, but you need to engage in a process of ongoing learning to change what you're doing and to improve it. In this case, what started as a grassroots initiative ended up uh, resonating and taking over some part of the whole system, the whole educational system. And that's what allowed for its dissemination. So again, no matter whether you're starting bottom up or top down, you need to engage intentionally with the other levels. That's what allows for widespread dissemination. I think it's fascinating, Santiago, You described what good teaching and learning looks like in some of the systems that you've been in throughout North America, et cetera. And you also described good teaching and learning coming out of that project in Mexico, coming out of Escuela Nueva in Colombia. And the elements are very common. When we see the best of the best in any of those contexts, which are very, very diverse, the the elements of good teaching and learning are constant. And I think you're very hopeful in the book, you start to talk about how can we make it happen at the school level? Because all of us work in different systems, we've got different curricula, we've got different policy frameworks, and teachers, of course, in the classroom have to follow along at those. But there are a couple of things that you have noticed that make a difference. And when you talk about teaching in, when you talk about really strong learning taking place in schools, You mentioned a couple of elements. The first one is teacher interaction. In any of the schools, regardless of whether it's Global South or Global North, what you notice is that there is lots of collaboration, interaction happening teacher to teacher. And the second thing that you talked about was parental involvement. And I have to admit, when I saw the parental involvement piece, I was a little bit nervous because some communities don't have parents that can be involved in the same ways because they're working two or three jobs in in any of our communities. So let's go back to teacher interaction first. Why is that so important? 
in the case of our educational systems is especially important because for two reasons. The first one is teaching historically became a very individualistic profession. This is something that many kind of uh, sociologists and ethnographists of the teaching profession have pointed out for many times, Dan Lorty and so school teachers, sociological studies. All those studies pointed to the isolation of teachers. That's the first piece. And the second one is that it's becoming increasingly clear that the nature of the work we do with our kids have, has to change in very fundamental ways. And one of the most powerful ways to do it is with your colleagues, through exposure to other ideas, to other practices, etc. As I was saying, collaboration is one of the key conditions to powerful learning. We are social learners. We, we learn with others when, when uh, we have, we're trying to solve problems alongside others. So that's what makes uh, teacher collaboration so important. And teachers that have the opportunity to collaborate and have an opportunity yeah. to see the value of what they're learning, bouncing ideas off of each other. That's right. They're also much more likely to create a classroom environment where that's facilitated for students because the teacher believes that the students have the opportunity to live and learn in that type of environment. That's a very important point. Actually, in the most powerful educational change, pedagogical change initiatives I've, I've found, teachers engage as learners as well. They use or create opportunities to experience learning themselves before thinking about teaching, just experiencing good, powerful learning themselves. And then that makes it more likely that they will want to use it with their kids. At the end of the day, the one of the reasons why collaboration is uh, powerful is because it ignites of the major drivers of intrinsic motivation. And that's one of the things that education systems have historically not being able to tap into as much as they should. So let's think about the four major drivers of intrinsic motivation. This is what uh, self-motivation theories have been saying for, for quite a while now. Dan Pink in his book Drive summarizes them in a nice way, but it's purpose, it's mastery, it's autonomy, and it's connectedness. And those four elements are equally as important for the teacher as for the students. They are, they are, for sure, for sure. The thing is, when you work with colleagues, your purpose may become clear. You can, if collaboration is working well, you may start to feel that you're getting better at your game. And that's mastery. That's about mastery, about getting better at what you're doing. That motivates. Uh, autonomy and good collaboration, as Michael Fullen has been saying recently, it has to be a combination of working together and then going to try things by yourself. It's uh, what Michael has called collaborative autonomy. So the idea is you have moments of interaction and you have moments of independence, but you have to have the two. And a good collaboration furthers good autonomy. Again, the third driver of powerful motivation. And finally, connectedness. It's something that motivates us is working with others and the teacher collaboration grants that. But, but I agree with you. What works for teachers works for kids. At the end of the day, we're all human beings. You know, I think we tend to run schools in a way that makes us think that children are kind of humans in development instead of thinking that they are full humans and that we should see them and treat them as that, not as someone who will suddenly become a great learner, but we need to see them and treat them as full-on learners from the beginning. So what you're pointing out is very important. What works for teacher learning works for kids learning. And that's the case because we are both full humans. You know, kids, of course, they need to learn new things. They're under in development in many ways. 
But as human beings, they're full from the moment they're born. And I think the more we see them and treat them that way, so that the opportunities, the environments for learning that we create are similar to the environments we create for adults. When that environment is good, the further along we'll get to liberating learning. One of the other points that you made from the examples in Colombia and Mexico was that there was real parental involvement. And I'm wondering in our context, then, do we think of parental involvement as broader, where it's parental and or community involvement? Now, in cases like the one we were able to stimulate and to support in Mexico, it was not that the parents at the beginning were very interested in the education of their kids. They, they saw the school in a similar way. It's we send them there, that's going to give them some opportunities for further growth and possibly find a good job. Historically, that had been the connection. It was, you know, we, we take care of educating them in what we know how to do, but schools do their work. That was the nature of the involvement. What happened is that, as I was saying, part of the mechanism, part of the method, was that kids would present publicly what they were learning and how. And many times the teachers would invite the parents to come and see what their kids were doing. And there were so many instances of parents moved to tears when they saw their kids transformed. Parents would say, I, I, I didn't know my kid was able to do this. I don't remember hearing his voice when we were at home. And, you know, the degree of confidence and joy when parents started to see kids coming home with books and spending time solving math problems in their home, in their own time, instead of watching TV, they started to see something important happening there. And that's when they started to come more and more and more, when they saw the transformation in their children. And they started to become phenomenal allies to this work. They started to spread the word in other communities. That leads to a comment, Santiago. You talked about making the reform public and that that's part of the role of the district or the region is to have leaders that can describe the kind of learning that is taking place and then be able to have teachers talking about every layer within the organization talking about what that deep learning looks like and bringing in parents and community members so that they're seeing it for themselves and talking about that as a desire for learning in their jurisdiction. That's right. And we need that. Uh, it, it is so clear. The thing is, by design, schools have excluded parents and communities. And now we're in a time when that's not possible anymore. The boundaries are way, way more permeable now. I mean, especially in days like this over the past 14 months. Now we need to take this as an opportunity to reimagine what learning is about. I mean, we're in the midst of a global crisis, the biggest that any of us right now on this planet have experienced before. Any, anybody, no crisis has been as multidimensional as shaking up our foundations as, as this one. Our economic certainties and our social and political certainties, they're all being shaken up. Right now, in this moment of crisis, we need to think, what are we educating for? That's a very big, a very important question that we need to ask ourselves. And I don't think the right answer is we educate so that our kids learn to be taught. That's no longer what our kids will need. They've never needed it. But this time it's more irrelevant than ever and more damaging than ever. We need kids and I would say, if, if I were to think about the core purposes of education for what's coming, I would love 
to contribute to developing education systems where that help kids and support kids to know themselves, to learn and to think by themselves, to care for others, and to better the world. That's it. That's my set of four. I think you do a really good job of clarifying. You bring up the comment of democracy and the importance for learning for democracy. And it's a great way to kind of summarize the whole thing, because at this point in history, as you said, the biggest pandemic in the last hundred years, the biggest disruption to social networks, to health, to economies, etc. We need children that can help solve these situations moving forward. And in order for them to do that, there's actually fairly good indication of what are the elements of a good learning environment? What are those conditions? And so you leave us at the end of the book with this idea of some really concrete steps that irrespective of the context or the educational system that you're working in, there's some things that we can be doing to get at that and improve it. Thank you. And let me talk about democracy for a moment. The thing is, the basic unit that we need to intervene, that we need to redefine is the instructional core, the pedagogical core. I'd like to call it pedagogical more than instructional. But the basic unit where learning happens or not is the interaction between a teacher and a learner in the presence of an object of knowledge. That's it, in that basic triangle. That's where learning happens or not. And many authors have been talking about the importance of changing what happens there, because that's where learning happens or not. What I want to bring to the discussion is that the in the pedagogical core, that is also where democracy happens or not. At the end of the day, in the pedagogical core, you have relationships of power. And historically, that relationship has been one of control, of one person on a very clear separation between who has power and voice and who doesn't, between who knows and who doesn't, between who teaches, the one who teaches and the one who learns, between the one who says what has to be done and the one who is to comply. That's a relationship of control. It's a hierarchical relationship of control and authority. For control purposes and for what schooling was invented to do, that works fine. Not for learning, because good learning happens in dialogue, in a relationship when both parts are learning from each other, where both parts change in the exchange, in the process of learning. That's what John Hattie has been saying. That's what discipline learning is about. And that's what summarizes, I think, what good pedagogy is. It's an engagement where both parts are learning and influencing each other. This has implications for democracy as well, because in hierarchical relationships of authority and control, what you develop is mindsets, is behaviors, is attitudes that are a good fit for dictatorships, for authoritarian regimes. But robust democracies need a different kind of relationship between, basically between the citizen and the state. In robust democracies, what you have is a connection between citizenship and the state that's more horizontal in nature, where both learn from and interact with and influence each other and change in the process of learning from each other. Things may be contentious at points, but it's in the process of interaction that you develop a good, robust democracy. And that starts in the pedagogical core. If the nature of the, the connection that our kids are exposed to most of the time is one of control. That precludes learning, but it precludes the, the skills and the mindsets that democracies require. So the pedagogical core is important not only because that's where the learning happens or not, but that's where democracy is being built or not. 
because that's where you build the mindsets, the skills, the attitudes, the habits of our younger generations. Santiago, it's a great motivational stance for all of us to know that we can have an influence on creating better learning situations for the students in our classrooms, to have those kinds of relationships, have students develop into the kinds of people that will really be able to create strong, healthy societies in the future. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. And I am sure based on this conversation, you're going to have our listeners going out and taking a look at this book. It's a fascinating look. It's a look that I haven't seen before. And congratulations on some great work. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Wonderful. Thank you, Santiago. Thanks to Santiago for joining our podcast today. It's not often we have the opportunity to hear from someone who's both a researcher and a practitioner and who has intimate knowledge of education systems as different as those in Mexico and in Canada. If you're looking for this rich perspective, you'll want to read his book, Liberating Learning. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.